0: Welcome to Senior Living Visionaries, a podcast for senior living leaders who are looking to stay ahead of the curve in the industry. On this show, we feature leaders and innovators in senior living who are pushing the boundaries and creating new, effective
1: services and solutions. And now, let's settle in as host Jennifer Drago connects us with today's guests. Hi, welcome to Senior Living Visionaries, broadcasting live from the Phoenix Business Radio X studio, where we showcase leaders and innovators in the field of senior living. I'm your host, Jennifer Drago. I'm a strategy consultant and the CEO of Peak to Profit. And I'm really excited about today's guest, Larry Bradshaw, who's a financial consultant these days, but a retired CEO and former CFO who's worked in the senior living industry for over 40 years. And one of the things I'm going to introduce him fully here in just a second. But one of the things I was re- I am really interested in, and I spoke to Larry very early on when I was really talking about bringing this podcast to life, was really helping our industry become more financially resilient and more sustainable in the long term. And with Larry's background and his expertise, uh, he's really helping organizations do that. Now, he is retired, so he doesn't want to work all the time, but we're going to hope to extract some of these goodies out of his brain today and learn what we can do as senior living providers and executives to remain financially resilient and keep that strength behind us in really challenging times. So as I mentioned, Larry has more than 40 years of experience in the nonprofit senior living industry. He started as a CFO and had a really long run with um, Asbury Communities, uh, where he started as a CFO and Executive Vice President for Strategic Growth and then took on the role for the Asbury Group, which I think does consulting for continuing care retirement communities. He then went on to consult on his his own, but then shortly returned to National Lutheran Communities and Services as the president and CEO, where he was from 2009 to the time that he retired in 2021. So Larry has a wealth of knowledge that he can impart to us today, and I'm just so excited to welcome you, Larry.
0: Thank you, Jennifer. Glad to be here.
1: You bet. So, you know, I mentioned we really want to strengthen this industry, and I know you've been working in it a long time. That's been your, you know, part of, I'm sure, your passion and purpose is um, helping to create the next level of leaders and continue, you know, so that your legacy is strong and you have people coming in behind you that are leading the organization and focusing on the things that you would want them to. And so in that vein, I'm going to ask my first question about the type of consulting that you're brought in to do now with organizations. What are some reasons that organizations bring you on or seek your type of assistance in this day and age?
0: Well, thank you, Jennifer. It's an interesting time, as you know, in in senior living. I mean, coming out of the pandemic, and um, as you've said, I am retired, but I do get get called in to and asked a few questions. and And my experience in the last eighteen months since I retired have really been in the areas of development. I've had a community uh, look to me and to to help them with some development of both expansion opportunities and also new campuses. Mm-hmm. And that was really around looking at the feasibility of doing something, especially in a in a really difficult environment in certain areas around land entitlements and project entitlements and really getting through a lot of the red tape that communities are doing. I've I've done a few of those. Uh, I've, I've actually done a little bit of uh, of secret shopping uh, mm-hmm. for some organizations going in and pretending that uh, Uh, I'm looking. Pretending may not be the right word, but you know, pretending to look at those. I'm looking from the eyes of a consumer, Mm -hmm. and then going back to those communities and saying, "Well, here's some things I saw, or some things that weren't being done." And I think, again, during the pandemic, we a lot of communities the occupancy dropped so low there was very little kind of marketing or lead generation because people just were staying home. So. I think some of the organizations that I've talked to have gotten a little bit out of practice on, mm-hmm. you know, how they contact people, how they follow up, and all those things. And so, just some of the basic blocking and tackling, if you will, on some of those developmental and marketing issues. But I think primarily what I give some advice on, or, or take a look at, is really financial stability in the organizations, and and really kind of what to look at. Uh, I think the industry has come so far. Uh, in the last 40 years. But there's still so many nuances, especially in senior living when it comes to entrance fees and it comes to those some of those accounting issues that are not necessarily easy to understand, even for people who do it all the time, Mm -hmm. Uh, but especially for people trying to sell the product or get into the product. So a lot of financial nuances. I take a look at a lot of financial statements Mm -hmm. and just kind of give some thoughts on and, and it's funny how sometimes people will ask me. Says, well, I think we're doing pretty well. And I'll look at their statements and say, I think you're doing some pretty good pretty good things. But either I see vulnerability points, or I see opportunities to um, to really gain even more traction. <laughs> Excuse me. And um, so I think I would say it's a little bit. Variety, uh, there's a variety of things to look at, but primarily it's, it's around the financial stability of the organizations.
1: Yeah, and that's so important. And, um, you know, one of the things that we talked about as we were prepping for this call is I think we would love to see providers reach out and seek expertise in this area far ahead of when they might need it, right? So even when yeah. things are seemingly good, maybe occupancy is almost recovered to the pre-pandemic levels, but, you know, you're you're still struggling a little bit financially, that's a great time to, to seek the guidance of an expert and say, hey, take a look and see what we can do differently. Um, we're going to get into some of the factors, some of the things that you look at. But one of the things I take away from, from talking to you is that each organization is so unique and their financial picture and this sustainability and stability is really a puzzle, right? You're kind of mixing and matching a number of elements to optimize how that organization can perform financially, even in the midst of all of the things that are hitting our industry right now, You know, staffing shortages, inflationary pressures, uh, you name it.
0: I think your puzzle analogy is, is right on track, Jennifer. I think one of the maybe the positive things that have come out of the pandemic, I'm, I'm not quite sure, I don't think we've gone far enough in to see if it's really positive or not, but there were some statistics several years ago that over 65% of the leaders in senior living were going to be leaving retire- through retirement. Wow! And we're kind of in that period of time now. And I'm one of those uh, individuals. But I think that maybe the good part of that coming out of the pandemic is some of the new leadership that's coming in with some new ideas, mm-hmm. and they're not uh, handcuffed or or biased by the way things have always been done, which I which I think could be a positive uh, moving forward.
1: I agree. I agree. And on the flip side of that, they may have great ideas, um, which we need in this industry. We need disruptors. <laughs> we need innovators, <laughs> but matching those ideas with some financial expertise, really important, right? We got to make sure that we do this in a very smart way.
0: Not to be at all negative, but I think one of the challenges that is very subtle in this industry in trying to be innovative and trying to illuminate some of the things we're talking about today is really the, some of the regulators, regulations in different States. They've come through the pandemic and they've really changed also. They weren't always as innovative and as quickly as as a provider we wanted them to be, but I'm concerned that maybe they've gotten a little farther behind because of the pandemic and because of you know all the other focus of legislation and those type of things. We'll see how that plays out, but I think that could be a factor in the
1: future too. Yeah, good point, good point. So in your the last 18 months if, as you've been brought in, you know, this is really post-pandemic. What kinds of trends are you, are you seeing when it comes to financial stability? What things are you seeing that you point out more and more maybe than you did in the past?
0: Well, certainly occupancy has to be at the top of the list because If you go through and look, um, the organizations, I think, that are really doing well out of the pandemic have increased their independent living occupancy back to pre-pandemic levels. But the healthcare side, assisted living, memory care, skilled nursing are, are, are significantly lower. While that in itself is a pretty good indicator, I think the trends of staffing has gone the other direction. They've become more expensive, harder people to staff, and if you talk to HR professionals, I heard this when I was—we were in the pandemic. I was in the in the pandemic until you know the end of 2021, so kind of in the throes of it. Mm-hmm. But we had so many individuals who would sign up for interviews and they would just never show up, and it just—it it would just be very, very difficult to um, to get people in. So, so as I look at financial stability, I, I really have focused on a couple things. One is certainly occupancy, but two is occupancy mix, especially in in skilled nursing and assisted living where you're in a type A or life care community where you could have a lot of individuals coming out of independent living going into skilled nursing, but they're usually at pretty deep discounted rates. So that could affect your revenue stream. So I think what I've really looked at is, okay, what's your occupancy, but what's your mix? And I think that's real important uh, to look there. And again, depending on the contract, um, you know, how dependent are you on on entrance fees? Mm-hmm. Uh, are the entrance fees refundable? Do you have? If they are refundable, do you? A lot of contracts will allow individuals to leave their independent living apartment but go to skilled nursing or assisted living without paying the refund and entrance fees because the contract stipulates you don't pay it until they leave the community. Mm-hmm. You get a new entrance fee in, but you're building this liability in skilled nursing all of a sudden you've got eight or $10 million of refunds sitting in, in healthcare. And if for some reason you've run out of inventory or you're very highly occupied, all of a sudden, where's that money going to come from when it's time to pay it out? So uh, I think that's an area I've been, I've been looking uh, at a lot. You know, one of the organizations that I work with, we've actually begun to put that on our financial statements. So we can actually see what that number is, And that liability is because while it's on the balance sheet as a deferred revenue until it is very specific to healthcare stability, it can just be lost in the numbers. So if if it's not uh, distinguished on the financial statement, certainly as part of the management report, I think has been something to be useful of. We we look a lot uh, at debt service coverage ratios. Usually that's the covenant related to debt. Mm -hmm. And I've begun to focus more on the debt service coverage without entrance fees versus with entrance fees, because certainly you can be in in line with your covenants. But I'd like to see that ratio of debt service coverage without entrance fees continue to rise because that reduces your reliance, of course, on entrance fees, which I think is really important. And we've seen how important it is. I mean, uh, if we have a heavy reliance of entrance fees and occupancy goes down due to something like the pandemic, it's hard to, it's just hard to get that back. So my focus has really been more on focus on improving operations, less reliance on on entrance fees, making sure your capital expenditures are adequate, because what you can't afford in this environment is to have a a, a tired facility. And of course, liquidity is also an important area. So those are kind of the the five or six areas that I look on, look at. And if one of those looks like it's kind of going the wrong direction, it's time to dig a little deeper.
1: Yeah. So, I love what you brought up about um, entrance fees and uh, you know <laughs> how they play into kind of your occupancy mix, um, the refundability component, really um, the the mix of contracts that you have in your organization. And, and you've brought up some points that I really haven't heard expressed by many consultants that work in this industry, which is, you know, if you're not, Keeping an eye on you know the the refunds that you need to <clears throat> issue and you know um, kind of how the entrance fees play into your overall financial picture you really run the risk of having a big surprise in the future and and I love your idea of kind of always having an eye on those numbers and knowing where you're at so that you can be planning accordingly.
0: Yeah, I think one of the things we we tend to look at um, this industry. I mean. I could I could paint you a scenario. I haven't thought about this in advance, Jennifer. So I hope it doesn't doesn't mess up. But I mean, if a if a project came to you with ninety eight percent occupancy in um, in independent living, and um, you had uh, entrance fees, you know that, and your debt service coverage ratio was you know one point five times, which is all very strong. But in that scenario. If you 98%, you're functionally fully occupied, right? Because you know, by the time people go out of the project and then mm-hmm. you have to turn the unit over, you're there. But let's say that you've built up that refund liability in healthcare, and maybe it's 10 or 15 million dollars, you know, depending on your market, how big it is. Well, all of a sudden, those people start needing their refunds out of healthcare. You don't have any units to to sell to resell. So while yes, the occupancy is great and it's strong. The flip side of that is, if it's so strong that you cannot pay some of those refunds, I think that's that's problematic, yeah. and it really could affect your liquidity. And when you start paying those refunds, it affects your debt service coverage. So, uh, and you don't have entrance fee refunds coming in to replace them because they've already been replaced.
1: Yeah, good point. Good point. You know, one of the things I just interviewed uh, Brad Pollis from Continuing Care Actuaries on on this podcast. And Brad's a good guy. I like him. Yeah, he sure is. And and uh, you know, when I was in working for a provider, I had the opportunity to work with Brad and really think about, oh, what do different benefit structures look like? How can we, you know, morph this plan? Or is this contract still appropriate given, you know, what the the next generation of residents is going to want. And that's one of the things that actuaries, I think, are really good at doing is kind of strategic visioning. And I'm not sure all providers kind of take advantage of that. And so what you're describing, um, you know, back to the contracts and the contract mix, and I think you could really have some great conversations with your actuary. And, and I think that could be a key takeaway from this um, podcast, if as listeners are listening, is if you haven't taken a look at your contracts in a while or thought about how they might need to change or that how that mix might need to change, could be a really good time to do it. And the other thing that Brad was sharing is. A lot of providers are taking advantage of the shift in utilization post-pandemic. He reported to us that skilled nursing facility utilization is down. That residents are really resisting more than ever going into skilled nursing. You know, whereas in prior years it might have been 18 to 22 percent, now we're seeing 15 to 18 percent of residents actually utilize. Um, that service, you know, short-term or long-term, depending on what's going on. And so providers are taking advantage of that and maybe adding in home care benefits, you know, where we could actually provide care, but in a different location, which is, you know, again, truly what residents want. But yeah. Did you ever work with uh, actuaries in that regard to kind of strategically vision that, you know? Well, it's funny
0: that uh, you mentioned, Brad, uh, because we in my former job, we did work with their, his company, and I have a lot of respect for what he does. And prior to me leaving National Lutheran uh, in my former job, we actually were developing a project that we created. And I, I'm not sure this has been done a whole lot of places. We actually created a project that had both type A and type C contracts. Mm-hmm. And we did that for marketing reasons for a couple, because we did have some people that like the life care benefits, but others who had a lot of long-term care insurance and didn't want to pay the premium. So we actually generated, the project will have type A and type C contracts, but we did cap them at a certain level. And I remember the conversations that we had with Brad and his team about, well, where do we cap these at? I mean, how, how many do we do for type A? How many do we do for type C? And it's an interesting conversation, but I think also The actuarial models for years, and I've I've said this to other people, I've said the actuarial models for for years from my experience always look to to have higher or or bigger skilled nursing facilities than what was really needed. Mm -hmm. Um, I go back to my early years back in the 1990s in in another organization, and we built a community which had a a 40-bed skilled nursing community. And that didn't fill up for 15 years, mm-hmm. and because people wanted to stay out of there, so I have kind of felt like a little bit our industry has shot ourselves in the foot a little bit about the number of skilled nursing beds that that we have built at National Lutheran, my former job. When I got there, they had 300 bed skilled nursing facility, and it was huge. And we dropped it to 160, redeveloped the entire skilled nursing. And frankly, if I would have had to do it again, I probably would have said instead of 160 plus 260, mm-hmm. um, because it's just hard to fill, and now it's hard to staff. So, I think the industry is is paying heed to what needs to be done, and I'm really glad to hear that you've had Brad on this because he's a very innovative person. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think we we've got to figure out a way to to reinvent and 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 if you will, right size some of these skilled nursing and healthcare beds, because to your point but with home care and, uh, other such things. And at some point the Medicaid model is going to get to the point where I think, and I don't, I don't know when it's going to happen. I don't know if it'll ever happen, mm-hmm. but I think the money could actually follow individuals versus followers communities. Yeah. And then you'll have a really interesting situation. If, if Medicaid and the States and funding, um, cap off certain levels to individuals, and then all of a sudden they've got to use those dollars the best way they can. Yeah. And so that that's going to be at the lower cost. So. It, it's an interesting time, but um, I'm glad to hear that you had Brad on.
1: Yeah, well, and the other thing that um, I, I don't know if this—if you've seen this in other areas or other states, I know not all states can uh, are as flexible. Um, but here in Arizona, before I left industry, um, we had three life plan communities in the state that had decommissioned their sniff beds altogether and had kind of beefed up their assisted living. So, whether added beds to that, added uh, acuity levels so they had high acuity AL, and what they found was they could adequately take care of 99.5% of every resident's needs in the high acuity AL. And, you know, where they needed to outsource and they did that with strategic partners was for short-term rehab. Or for the very few cases that needed, you know, a true level of SNF care. So, are you seeing that in other um, areas of the country?
0: Yeah, I am. People are just looking to right-size skilled nursing. Mm -hmm. I mean, or or decommission. I know um, in here in Maryland, uh, when I worked in Maryland, and this was going back, and and since that time, I'm glad to hear the Department of Aging has kind of changed their stance. But if you were building a continuing care retirement community, they were they were mandating. Matter of fact. The project I talked about earlier back going back to the 90s, we had a, a smaller healthcare footprint and were required by the regulators to make it bigger. Mm. And it never filled up because the regulators were really looking at the actuarial models that I think were really skewed a little bit towards, towards more healthcare. So yeah, I'm seeing a lot of that. I'm hearing about a lot of it. And I'm also hearing that the state of Maryland now is, instead of trying to provide bigger skilled nursing beds are trying to partner with home health and home care mm-hmm. to make that happen too. So I'm excited about the direction yeah. because I think it it's going to alleviate some of the issues relative to the high cost of health care, but also the staffing shortages. Those are our critical components. I mean, uh, marketing is always, always critical, but we've got a pretty big aging population coming into place, but we don't have the individuals to care for people. And that's a tough job. And now that you're you're really... When I left National Lutheran, I, I said several times, because our wages had gone up so much because of regulatory living wage requirements and everything else, we were, we were now competing with you know, fast food restaurants and, and other such restaurants, which were paying similar amounts of money. And frankly, that's a much easier job than taking care of, of seniors who, who have really acute and, and chronic care needs.
1: Really good. Yeah, I
0: think I think that's beginning to address some of the really critical vulnerabilities. And that's a key word. Vulnerabilities our in our uh, sector because we are vulnerable to uh, those type of things.
1: Yeah. I want to return to kind of the financial piece and ask you, you know, you were a CEO for a number of years. What are the key metrics that you had on your dashboard that you looked at you know, I don't want to say day in and day out, but certainly weekly. And are there any uh, surprise metrics that you can share with us that you would monitor that perhaps other CEOs may not have?
0: Okay, yeah, that's that's fair. We had um, we built an in-house uh, business intelligence model that we were really proud of that uh, really distilled and focused a lot of things down. But of course, I, I mean, every day you want to look at occupancy, mm-hmm. uh, not just overall occupancy, but also. Within within your skilled nursing, you want to look at, uh, we, we tried to have a fairly high Medicare profile, uh, especially at our, our flagship community. And so I would look at that Medicare model because that was appropriate that we kept at a certain level. Our second community that we built in Virginia, I think we were pretty innovative. We only built 10 beds for 200 independent living units, 10-bed mm-hmm. uh, healthcare, and we had a 16-bed memory care. and. You know, it's funny. I think it worked pretty well, except psychologically for the residents who were constantly saying we need a bigger footprint. (laughs) That was very interesting to me. But uh, anyway, I digress a little bit. But occupancy and then that mix within skilled nursing, I think were very important. I took a look at our average wages by um, job classification a lot, Mm -hmm. really paid attention to that. And as the pandemic was wearing on, we were able to track our tenure really well. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Sorry, so sorry. And I'm going to take a real quick drink of water. Sorry. Mm -hmm. So we were looking at that fairly closely. Our liquidity levels were important. Those were the really big ones. And then when I went to staffing, I looked at open positions, uh, the number of open positions we had, uh, the average number of FTEs. And then I looked a lot at our production metrics on our staffing. I looked at productivity, PTO hours, mm-hmm. education hours, really looking, trying to make sure overtime was a big one too, but really trying to make sure that our productive me- produ- production metrics were greater than 92%. Because I felt like if we could keep our people on the floor or in the units for 92% of the time, meaning we weren't replacing them for paid time off or education purposes we were probably doing pretty well. And if we could keep our overtime numbers under 3%, that was really positive for us. Yeah. When I first started there, the overtime numbers were 20%. And it's one of the first things we really went after wow. was just managing the people. And, uh, you know, it just wasn't, everybody could go on vacation the same day. You know, they, they had to be some structure. And we, we got that down lower than 3%, even lower than 2% um, for the most part. So those are metrics I really, Took a look a lot
1: at yeah,
0: and of course the other thing relative to Medicare was just um, because Medicare is a capitated cost, we just looked at uh, what our what our expense levels were to that because mm-hmm. um, if uh, Medicare costs Medicare expenditures get a little bit out of control, all of a sudden those uh, really high daily reimbursement rates you get on Medicare um, they can do really quickly. Yeah, so we looked at that. We looked a lot at because we had a large Medicare utilize, utilization. We tried to find that sweet spot. Uh, where the reimbursement levels were maximized. And then once our residents got to that point, we would want to make sure our our, our service structure had them moving to the next level of care yeah. because reimbursements were going to go down. So I, I hope that helps, but those yeah. were the big ones we took a look at for the most part. Yeah. And we had them on a dashboard. They would shoot up on your, your screen pretty much any on demand or anytime you wanted to look at them.
1: Yeah. I'm a big proponent of uh, dashboards and metrics, right? What you what you measure matters and gets your attention. Um, And I love that you talked about productivity standards because, you know, my experience in in senior living was that there didn't seem to be many organizations that were truly focused on it in the way that you described. And hopefully that's changing because I do think that's a key to our success in the long term for sure. But, you know, every single day.
0: Yeah. The other thing I think is important to look at is really the percentage of of your salaries and, and labor-related costs, including con- any contract management and, and employee benefits to, to your operating revenue. Because if that number begins to get too high, those costs essentially become fixed costs. Because mm-hmm. there's not a whole lot you can do when you have to staff the project. But if those numbers are closer to 50%, that gives you a little flexibility on, on areas. If you have to cut, you can cut.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: But if it's all staffing, it's hard to do. Yeah, Uh, unless you're unless you're tremendously overstaffed. And I don't think anybody's having that situation.
1: Yeah, (laughs) yeah, for sure. You mentioned occupancy and that's been such a push, right? Since the pandemic, trying to restore our occupancy to pre-pandemic levels. And I know, you know, now actually we're probably all shooting for a higher target, a higher stabilized occupancy because of the increase in staffing costs and things like that, that you that we've already talked about. But, you know, you mentioned something to me in our pre-call that, you know, occupancy alone does not tell the full story, right? And we can have a very high occupancy organization that still has some financial challenges. So can you give some context to what you've seen as you've consulted with organizations around this?
0: Well, I think if you have high occupancy levels, the first thing I'm going to say is that's really good. The second thing I'm going to say, and, and if and if you have really high occupancy and you're, you're struggling financially, then you want to take a deeper look. Uh, what What is your, if your high occupancy is mixed, your high occupancy is there, but you have, you can't get enough units for scale. I think that's something to really take a look at. I mean, obviously, if you have a 10-bed nursing facility and you're full- you're up to 98%, you know, on a rolling basis, that's probably pretty good, except that is such a small scale, you probably can't get any kind of efficiencies in staffing. Mm-hmm. So I think scale makes a big, big difference in that. I think also, I talked a little bit about it earlier, if your hot, occupancy gets too high, it could it could pinch you in other areas, especially if you have entrance fee refunds that are sitting on the sidelines waiting to be paid. And also if you're in, if you're relying on entrance fees to pay your, um, to have your debt service coverage levels be adequate, and all of a sudden you're at 98. percent You don't have any uh, any product to sell, yeah. and so then you've got to rely on on operations. And if your operations are are weak and very reliant uh, on on uh, entrance fees, and if you don't have any product, then all you have is your your operational expenses. The only thing you can do is cut costs,
1: yeah, and,
0: or raise entrance fee, or raise monthly fees a lot. And the residents don't like to do that. So <laughs> yeah, um, so I think it's. Occupancy is a great beginning barometer, mm-hmm. but if I'm called in and someone says, well, I've got occupancy at 97%, I'm just, I'm just losing money. That tells me several areas to look. You yeah. know, scale, your cost structure, what's your staffing structure look like? What are your fixed costs? What are your manage- managerial costs if you're doing your own management or you're outsourcing? What are your dining costs? Because dining costs begins begins get bigger. And what, how much debt do you have? Mm-hmm. I mean- if you've if you've got debt where you're uh, needing to to turn thirty percent of units a year to cover debt from entrance fees, that's you're just overdebted. And that's the other thing to look at. If if, every, if everything is good and it looks good and it's not good, there's something underneath it.
1: Yeah.
0: And and I we talked uh, before the before the call today. I sometimes think weirdly. I think than other people, which is <laughs> probably I don't know if that's good or bad, but. I have a concept of when I talk to people and I talk specifically about net operating margin, you know, and I say your net operating margin is good enough. Uh, the inevitable question is what should it be? And I think in a perfect world, you know, your operations should cover uh, your operational expenses. Obviously it, I think it should cover your some routine capex to a certain level every year, not, not expansion or any major products, but routine CapEx, and it should cover your uh, principal and interest on your debt. And if it does those things, chances are, and, and you're achieving that level, chances are you're taking most of your interest fees, putting them in reserve for a rainy day, whether it's a project mm-hmm. or for a potential uh, drop in occupancy. So that number um, is easily calcul- calculatable, as the word, calculable, calculatable. Mm-hmm. But sometimes it's so much different than what is actually happening. I worked with a company many, many years ago, and they said, what should our net operating margin be? And I said, well, in a perfect world, it's going to be 18%, but you could probably live with 14, and they're at 3 or 4%. That's a big hill to climb. Yeah, And um, and I think a lot of organizations back then were saying, well, you know what? We're going to just keep clanking away. So they didn't spend money on CapEx, and they didn't spend money on marketing, and in five years, guess what happens? Yeah. So.
1: Right, right. Yeah. When things get tight, you have to cut somewhere. But yeah, yeah the, maybe the target needs to be different and you structure everything around that target. I love that you said your net operating margin should cover um, some amount of CapEx and then your principal <clears throat> and interest. Then you're in good shape.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, if your cap interest, you know, if you can keep your days, the ratio, just skip my mind.
1: Days cash um, on hand? But
0: the age of plant. Oh, age, age of plant. plant. <laughs> yeah, there you go. I mean, if you have a goal that your age of plant is going to be around 10 years and your routine capex keeps that at 10 years, that's the amount you ideally will want to cover from operations. Yeah. I mean, it just it just works. Yeah. Um, but some people it's just for some organizations, you can't get there. So then the question is, well, what can I get to where I'll be doing good things? Right. And I said, well, there's thriving and there's surviving. I mean, if you want to thrive, you need to get to this area at least, and maybe not all the way there in, in year one, but maybe it's a, it's a part of your strategic plan that in five years, you're going to get to this optimal level. And on the surviving side, if you're at 4% and you need to be at 14% and you've decided you're going to stay at 4%, you're always going to struggle. I mean, yeah. the, the math is simple on that, but sometimes it's hard for organizations to make those tough decisions.
1: Yeah. Absolutely. Especially during, like we were just talking about the pandemic times, post-pandemic, we're still recovering. But I love the fact that you're encouraging providers and executives to reconsider you know, their targets and where they're at so that they can thrive. You know? And again, they not, may not get there in a year, but we can work toward that and uh, don't have to keep struggling. It's like
0: anything. It's hard to get where you're going if you don't know where you're going.
1: Yes. <laughs> I like to t- as a strategy consultant, that's kind of my main message, right? If you don't <laughs> have a vision, where are you headed? Right. You wouldn't take yeah. a road trip if you didn't know where you were going and you, you know, didn't know how to prepare for that. So we're very aligned in that regard. In our final question, I want to just ask you for, you know, your your best piece of advice offering to current CEOs uh, to strengthen their financial resiliency and, and sustainability in this challenging climate. So if you just wanted to give one final pearl of wisdom for us, I'd appreciate it.
0: I guess and probably would go away from the financial aspect, but I would say just build a great team. Build a great team of people that you work with, not not the people that work for you, but people you work with. Build a great board because that becomes a key element because if you have a great board, and you are transparent and you are really provide communication to them, they can help you because they can get you over the hump. And the last thing I would say would be to create a great communication and transparency plan to your residents and your staff, not just your senior team, but your staff. Because the higher you go in the organization, we all know this, the easier you all get toppled if you don't pay attention to those things. But I kind of always thought, everybody's going to make mistakes. And I certainly made my share uh, during my career, but if you can build a great team, that team will minimize your mistakes. If you can build a great board, you lessen your vulnerabilities. And if you can really build a great relationship with your residents and your staff at the communities and the line staff, it's hard to beat that that combination. So I really would encourage that. Mm -hmm. Um, To your point, look at dashboards, look at metrics, but Educate your team on what you're looking for because if your team knows what you're looking for as a CEO, I, I had a great team and I knew they, they knew what I look, what was important to me. Right. And if one of those things got out of line, they would come to me and say, Hey, Larry, this is out of line. And then we could deal with it together. Not just, they didn't come into my desk and dump it on my desk and say, you need to fix this. It's like, okay, how do we fix this?
1: Yeah.
0: I, I just think creating that great team team, great board, great relationships. That's where you get to where you need to go. And as a strategic consultant, my team, when I first got to Nashville, said, well, financial stability needs to be our goal. I said, no, financial stability is a result. It's a result of resident satisfaction, employee satisfaction, board integration, and how well your team stays together. If you do those four things or five things together, the financial metrics will will play themselves out and they'll be positive. But if that's your goal, you probably won't have as as deep a team and a cohesive a team as you want to have. Yeah. So I guess that's my pearl of wisdom at the end.
1: Yeah. What a great message. And um, I'm so glad that I asked you that question because you got to see your leadership in action there in terms of what was <laughs> most important to you. And I didn't have the opportunity to work with you during your career, but I sure wish that I would have because I imagine that you were an amazing CEO. So I just want to thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and experience with us and giving us a lot to take away in terms of how to build our financial resiliency as an industry. And Larry, I know you're on LinkedIn. Is that the best way to get in touch with you if anybody had some follow-up questions?
0: Well, I'm retired for sure, but yeah, that's probably the best way to do it.
1: He'll check it once every couple of weeks. But. I'll
0: check it. I'll t- I am I'm, I'm still have that little habit of checking things out, but I'm, I'm trying to break the habit. A little bit more golf and a little bit less checking, checking things like that. But I like to continually to in, engage and talk about things. I, I enjoy doing this and I've really enjoyed speaking with you today. And I'm, I appreciate the, the offer to, to join your team. And, um, you know, I wish you all the best of luck. I think you'll do great.
1: Thank you so much. Thanks, Larry. And um, today you've been listening to Senior Living Visionaries. It's a podcast that's specifically curated for senior living leaders with the hope that we can share innovations, disruptions, and best practices in our industry to kind of rise the tide, lift all boats and, and uh, rise that tide up. So thank you. And if you'd like to subscribe to our podcast, you can always be notified of new episodes, get transcripts, get special things that our guests are giving away. And you can do that at SeniorLivingVisionaries.com. Again, thanks so much. We'll see you next time.
0: Thank you, Jennifer. You've been listening to the Senior Living Visionaries podcast and radio show, where we showcase the leaders and innovators in the industry who are pushing the boundaries and setting the stage for the future in senior living and services. Join us next time as we share the bold ideas and breakthroughs of the industry's most forward-thinking leaders here on Senior Living Visionaries.